The following sermon was delivered on May 2nd, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Mr. Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled Christian Endurance on Hebrews 12, 1-3. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Beads of sweat accumulating on your brow, you're sweating bullets. What is the first situation you think of? Think of football practice or a soccer match, maybe playing tennis in the Mississippi sun, or perhaps you think of going on a long walk, knocking on doors, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with neighbors, maybe taking an excruciatingly painful test at the end of a semester, or perhaps a recital where you're playing a work of music you've been working on for months and months and practicing. What are those situations in your life where you've really exerted yourself? even unto the point of sweating bullets. And what has kept you going in those moments? A desire to do well, a desire to graduate into the next grade, to beat an opponent in an athletic match, or even simply to serve the Lord your God in whatever it is to which He's called us. Well, our passage tonight, Hebrews chapter 12, is set at the climactic point of a wartime letter, a letter sent to a group of people who weren't engaged in some physical conflict, but were engaged in spiritual warfare, were fighting against powers and principalities and had even their very possessions seized from them from time to time as they were dissuaded from worshiping the one true God. They were pushed to the point of near failure. Perhaps they even were sweating bullets simply to worship the Lord as faithful Christians. And what was it that kept them going? Well, we'll consider that this evening. Our passage relates the Christian life, the life to which you and I are called uh, to a race. You see it in verse 2, to run with endurance, the race that is set before us. And God, by His Spirit, working through the author of Hebrews, speaks to us and calls us to endure, calls us to press on, instructs us, in fact, in how to endure, instructs us in how to endure unto the glory of God who calls us heavenward, who calls us heavenward. That's an important detail. And because we're not in a series through Hebrews, I'm interrupting my Revelation series for this, I just want to briefly establish that to which the whole letter of Hebrews is, is looking. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the author writes, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So it's written to a group of people who have a heavenly calling. And then later on, in chapter 10, verse 34, we hear a bit about their, um, their situation, their tribulation, their trial, their difficulty. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Speaking of what? What we see in chapter 11, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So this letter is written to a community of people 
a community of Christians who understand and yet are being reminded that their calling is heavenward, that their desires are set on heaven and not on the things of this earth. That is the context into which now the writer sets forth this call to endure in the race that is set before them. My purpose tonight is through a study of Christian endurance to call you from this text to endure in your Christian life and to use every tool that Christ has given to you toward that end, every means He has made available. Why am I doing that? Because tonight we are observing the Lord's Supper, something that up to this point we don't do every week. And so we must be reminded that this too is a means of endurance for us. Just as surely as the regular preaching of the Word and daily prayer is, is a means of endurance for us. Two things will get in the way. will stand between you and the table or you and the Bible that will stand between you and Christ in this life. The first thing is an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame that will smother any sense of God's goodness and grace. That's one obstacle, one thing we must cast off. The other thing is the presumption of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, the belief that you don't need help, and you certainly don't need the help of some invisible God to, um, to fulfill all that which He's laid before you as direction and instruction. Both of these things, the inward-focused guilt and shame of the navel-gazer, and then also the uh, braggadocious self-reliance of the man with a great swagger, their shoots off of a common root, pride, autonomy, whatever you want to call it. And that, my friends, is what we really need to root out tonight as we consider Christian endurance. Our main idea this evening is Christian endurance operates through faith in Christ, who endured the great hostility of sinners leading to his death on the cross. Christian endurance operates through faith in Christ, who endured the great hostility of sinners leading to his death on the cross. And we'll consider three headings. First, the testimony of faith in Christ, and then the power of faith in Christ, and then finally, the fruits of faith in Christ. Let's look at verse 1 to consider the testimony of faith in Christ. Read with me. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance or hindrance or obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In this verse, we're given Christian testimony as a motivation at the beginning, but then also as a model for Christian endurance. First, Christian testimony as motivation. The opening word here, therefore, is, um, is a Greek word that's used particularly to show a tight connection between what comes before and what comes after. Every time there's a therefore, you must ask, and this is a trite saying, what it's there for. But this one in particular makes a very strong connection between chapter 11 and chapter 12. Now, what is Hebrews chapter 11 famous for? Well, that's where we learn about lions, people getting sawn in two, and all kinds of triumph of faith. It's frequently called the hall of faith. And so in view then are all of the witnesses from Old and New Testament up to this point who are set before the church as motivators 
almost like cheerleaders cheering you on to endure in the Christian life. The words of Hebrews chapter 11 would have been ringing in the ears of those who received this letter. And then they're being told, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also do such and such principally. Let us endure in the race that is set before us. But in view are not merely the witnesses, Abraham, Noah, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Samuel, and all the judges. No. What's really in view is the truth to which they clung in this life. The truth which they apprehended and that they held on to through what? Through faith. The truth that God is faithful to His promises. And this is our situation as well. When He says, let us also lay aside, let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. He's emphasizing the fact that we too are in the very same race as all of these saints that are recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 11. And so what that teaches us as, as the first opening principle of Christian endurance is that we are to be motivated by the history of redemption, the history of the church. That should motivate us to imitate those who endured because that ultimately will bring us to the point of apprehending through faith, just as they did, the promises that God has, principally a heavenly city. So remember, we're called with a heavenly calling. This motivation is also a model. It's not merely the fact that they went before us, all of these saints, which we don't have time to get into tonight, but it's also the fact that they went through in a particular manner. If you look at the Hall of Faith, what's, what's interesting is you have some, some kind of rough characters in there. We're thinking of David, think of Samson, Gideon, Jephthah. Do you remember what these guys did? David was an adulterer. Samson was profligate, a fornicator and an adulterer and a fool to boot. Gideon set himself up to be God in a, in a lot of ways and set up a false ephod. And Jephthah, he sacrificed his own daughter. But none of that is mentioned. No, our attention is not to be set on the bad things that these people did. Rather, we are to consider in what manner, in what ways they in fact were models of faith to us. Not, not even a single negative word or expression is used to describe them. Instead, the point of the author is to say, be of like faith to these men. Be of like faith. The exhortation, then, to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us is a logical conclusion to chapter 11, to follow on that pilgrimage after these people. And this endurance, that word that's used in verse 1, it's the defining characteristic. It's a strenuous race. It's an agonizing race. It's a serious run. This isn't a jog through the neighborhood. This is like an Olympic race. You're representing your country. It all hinges on you. You must run with endurance, whatever the competition is. That's the kind of language that the author here is using. And he says how to do it in the same way that they did setting aside 
all those things which, allay, which burden us down and forsaking every hindrance and entanglement. Primarily, what we're thinking of is the burden of guilt and sin. Now, boys, we got a lot of land here at the church. It's kind of cool. I think we have to figure out who's going to mow all the land now because the guy who was doing it is done. And if I told you to go outside and I set you all up in a line, I said, all right, we're going to do a race, a run. Would you enjoy that? Would you want to do that? Maybe instead of sitting here right now. Now, how about this? Some of those tombstones in the churchyard, they're like falling over, right? If I was strong enough, I could actually pull them up out of the ground. And what if I pulled them up and chained them to each of your backs and then said, now run across the field? You want to do that? No. Of course you don't. You wouldn't make it three steps. You would fall down and get pressed into the ground. No doubt. Well, what the author here is saying is throw the tombstone off of your back. Don't you recognize that no matter what weight of sin you have, whatever woe that has been visited upon you in this life, whatever mistake of your own doing that burdens you down, you throw it off in Jesus Christ. Look to that heavenly city, that promise of God, and place your trust in Him and run and run, throwing off all those encumbrances. What does a Christian do in Pilgrim's Progress when he gets to the cross? The burden falls off his back. And that's the very image that's being put before us here in verse 1. Well, who's sufficient for these things? What is the source of our assurance? How can we know that this is even at all remotely possible for us? Who can do this? Who can throw off this terrible weight that from birth burdens us down in sin? The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, tells us, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus. Let me repeat that. Such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. This is where the power of the Christian faith comes from, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've considered the testimony, and now we consider the power. First, Christ is the object of the Christian faith. We believe in Christ. What does that mean, to believe in Christ? Look at verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Where is He? Remember, He's in heaven. Fixing our eyes on Jesus in heaven, the author and perfecter of faith. I really wish that our English Bibles would capitalize those words, because that, that's a title. Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Like Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, or whatever, or or George Washington, President of the United States. It's a title. Why is this significant? Because who Christ is flows into and out of what Christ did for you and for me. He fulfilled His office, His function as author and perfecter, or as founder and completer of the faith. He fulfilled that work by enduring the cross, despising the shame, and sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's the only place in the New Testament where that phrase, endured the cross, is used. And so it's very important that we hone in on that and how enduring the cross is 
uh, making Christ Jesus worthy as the object of our faith. In fact, the sole object of our faith as we make our way through him unto the Father. It is Christ's work that makes it possible for us to endure in the race. And why did Christ endure the cross, endure the shame and the death and all of those things? We're going to talk a bit more about that. Why? For the joy set before him. All right, two things we need to unpack there. First, what is the joy? And secondly, what does it mean when we say that the joy was set before him? The joy, what joy? Well, John Owen says that that joy is the glory of God in the salvation of the church. The glory of God the Father in the salvation of the church. You see, if we think that Jesus came to glorify himself, we might think, well, that seems a bit selfish, doesn't it? But that's not why Jesus comes. He never says, I came to glorify myself. He says, I came to glorify the Father in full obedience to him by winning for him a people. And God the Father, why did he send the Son? Jesus does tell us this. God the Father sent the Son in order to glorify the Son as the Savior of the people. And why do, do the Father and the Son send the Spirit to glorify the Father and the Son? Within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have a perfect other-centeredness. You have not a shred of selfishness, but rather a mutual purposing to glorify one another. It's one of the beautiful mysteries of the Christian faith that our one God is yet not selfish in glorifying himself because Father glorifies Son who glorifies Father and Spirit glorifies Father and Son. This is why Jesus Christ came. This is why he endures the cross for the Father's glory and the salvation of you and of me. And how was that set before him? Three or four ways I want to point this out. First, it was set before him by eternal decree of the Father. He says, I came in obedience to my Father's will, doesn't he? And secondly, it comes, it's set before him through that agreement between the Father and the Son to engage in this work. The Son did not come under compulsion, but he volunteered himself. He voluntarily comes to fulfill the Father's will, the salvation of the church. And thirdly, it comes through the promises given to the church in the Old Testament, like those promises in Isaiah chapter 66, that all the nations would stream unto Jerusalem. And it also appears in Isaiah chapter 2 and in other places. These three ways all reflect one great central truth. And that is that Jesus does this. The joy is set before him because he is perfectly good. Because God is is perfectly and eternally and unchangeably, invincibly good. Did God need to save a people for himself? There's no compulsion in God. And yet, that work, that decree, that agreement, these prophecies, they all flow out of who he is, his very being. And so we praise him for the work of Jesus Christ in redemption, but we adore him for his perfect goodness and grace and love. In that way, the joy was set before Jesus Christ. And so, what do we do while well, we look to him? And this gives the means of how to run. This tells us how it is we are to run. We don't run with our backs arched looking up to the sky. We don't run physically with our backs hunched over looking at the ground. We maintain an erect posture and we run with earnestness. We run into the wind or with the wind at our backs, whatever it may be, 
But without that good posture, we're going to end up on the ground pretty soon. And the posture that we're given here is to look to Him, to keep Him ever before us. And who is this Christ, the object of the Christian faith? We've seen that He's author and perfecter of our faith, but He's also the King of the Christian faith. Look at the second half of verse 2 with me. It says that He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a direct reference back to Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All throughout the book of Hebrews, we see Psalm 110 referenced again and again, speaking of Christ's supremacy, speaking of Christ's eternal priesthood, speaking of Christ's power as king. And here it crops up once again that through the endurance of the cross, through his suffering, Jesus Christ is then exalted as king to sit at the right hand of God the Father. The finished work of Christ on the cross culminates then in his coronation as king. He wears a crown because he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders to win a people for the glory of his Father. This is a great narrative not only of Christ's life, but of the whole Scripture and reconciling a people to God. And what is the fruit then of our being under Christ's rule? Well, consider how Christ executes the office of a king. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to, ourself, to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining all his and our enemies. Victory is certain. God alone says, vengeance is mine, and God alone says, victory is mine. This is the great implication of what is said here, of what is alluded to and, and described in Philippians chapter 2, which speaks of the humiliation of Jesus, the coming down out of heaven, heaven, the laying aside His glory and taking upon Himself weak, frail human flesh, that then He might win a people for Himself and be exalted into heaven to be adored by us and praised week in, week out, day by day, in our homes and in our churches. And the fruit of our being under Christ's rule then is the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ in verse 3. We've looked at testimony, we've looked at power, and now we consider, just for a moment, the fruit of faith. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There are two parts to this. Consider Him so that you will not lose heart. Consider Him so that you will not lose heart. First, considering Him. One of the fruits of faith in Christ is a preoccupation, an obsession, a, an earnest and holy desire to meditate upon Christ, but specifically upon His sufferings of what He has accomplished on our behalf as our Savior and as our King. Why? Why would we consider these unpleasant things of blood streaming down from his, from his forehead where the thorns are pressed in, from Him hanging and being broken on a cross by nails through His wrists and through His feet? Why are we told to consider this? The fact that He was spat upon, that His clothing was auctioned off and gambled away, that all of His friends, every single one, forsook Him. 
that he was betrayed by the treasurer of his band of brothers. Why would we consider all this? That even today, his sufferings, as it were, are multiplied whenever an atheist speaks scorn against his name. Whenever anyone tells a Christian, stop talking to me about Jesus. Don't want to hear it. Why do we consider this? Why are we told to? Because it motivates us to run. What's the seedbed of the church? The blood of martyrs. What do we see in the blood of martyrs? The suffering of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you're finding yourself weary or burdened down by shame and guilt, consider the sufferings of Jesus. It is in the sufferings of Christ alone that an atoning sacrifice is made, that your guilt and your shame is taken away, that will embolden you and empower you to stand up against anything that this world has to throw at you. One of my favorite things to read about, and it might sound crazy, are the sufferings of the Covenanters in Scotland in the 1680s and the Huguenots in France uh, earlier on during their times of persecution. You read these accounts and you think, where did these people get this strength? Where did they get this endurance, this perseverance? They took seriously the suffering of Jesus Christ. They knew its worth. They knew its value. And so we're told here to consider the suffering of Christ. And Christ's sufferings are ever before us. You know, it's interesting in the grammar of this verse, the reference to Christ um, there at the, in the middle of verse 3 is surrounded by the two words. It's not reflected in English, but hostility and sinners. And so even grammatically, Christ is surrounded by hostility and sinners. And we're, we're being shown a picture of His suffering. And by His suffering, brothers and sisters, no matter what iron chains might bind us to whatever wall and whatever dungeon or prison cell, by His suffering, we are set free from the shackles of sin and shame. What did Paul do in the prison cell? Even while he was chained, he was singing with greater liberty than anyone had ever experienced outside. I have a friend who does prison ministry who was converted in prison, actually, uh, white-collar crime up north. And he was every week in the prisons, again, uh, calling men to repentance and saying to them, you might be behind bars for the rest of your life, but I'm going to tell you right now, you can be freer than 99% of people out there. By His suffering, we are set free. If you're here tonight, and particularly children, as you're growing up under uh, godly parents who seek to put Christ before you, if you're here tonight and you don't know that freedom, and you don't know why it is Jesus hung on the cross and what that accomplished for you, I plead with you, consider Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight, not just talking to the boys and girls, I can't see into your hearts, and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you don't know the reality of what He accomplished on the cross, then embrace Him now through faith. What is stopping you? Freedom is set before you. In fact, I can say with confidence that there is a well-meant offer that God Himself desires for you to be free in Jesus. That's the first fruit of the Christian life. The true Christian considers really and apprehends by faith the full import of Christ's sufferings. And then secondly, the true Christian endures. The fruit of faith in Christ's endurance for the Christian life. Look again at the verse. Consider him, dot, 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 so that, dot, 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 you will not lose heart. 
The so that here, it links the command in verse 3, consider him with the result in 3b, so that you do not lose heart. If you grow weary, you lose heart. You fall apart. Um, If you're running with a weight tied to your back, like I said, you're going to get tired and you're going to fall down. It's very simple. And we are dependent upon Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us, the Holy Spirit tells us through the author of Hebrews, we are dependent upon Jesus and Jesus Christ alone for our spiritual life and liveliness, our spiritual vitality and power which is why we are to look to Him in faith. We look to Him in faith, and then He protects us from spiritual disintegration, falling apart into multiple pieces on the ground. You ever uh, see one of those, you know, Lucas isn't a biology teacher, an anatomy teacher, he's a physics teacher, but I'm sure his colleagues at the school have one of those fake skeletons up in their room, and if you hit that thing with a bat, bones will go flying. That skeleton will be disintegrated all across the room. And that's the picture that's being given here. So that doesn't happen to you, so you don't go to pieces all over the floor, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. And not only is that a reason attached to a command, but it's actually a promise. If you consider him, if you rest in Christ, you will not grow weary, you will not lose heart. Who is Jesus? Yes, He's a model. He's an example to us. But so much more than that, He is an object of faith. He is Savior and King, Savior of sinners, King and head of the church. He's our hero. He's our hero. He's the hero of Hebrews. That sounds kind of corny, but isn't that the case? That Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is the hero of Hebrews, the one who not only calls us to endure, but gives us every resource needful to endure in the Christian life. What has Christ given to us as a church then to strengthen our faith for the race set before us? He's given us the instruments of fellowship with the triune God, the instruments of communion with the triune God, the means of fellowship with Him. We've considered this evening that Christian endurance operates through faith in Christ who endured the great hostility of sinners leading to His death on the cross, that atoning death on the cross which satisfied the wrath of God, the justice of God. And we've considered in turn the testimony, the power, and then the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. And each of these three main headings actually relate to what we're going to do tonight here when we approach the table together. First, the testimony of faith in Christ. Ours is an historical faith. It's not a Gnostic faith. It's a faith that takes place in history, in space and time. The things we believe actually happened. And Christ, by His Spirit, testifies to us in His Word read and preached, but also in His Word exhibited in the sacraments that such is the case. God The Father has laid out the table before us, but the table is not empty. Surrounding it in heaven are myriads of saints who have gone before us. And when we partake of the supper tonight, those of us who can examine ourselves, who have been um, examined by the session, those who have a credible profession of faith, when we come to the table tonight, we are seated in mystic sweet communion with that glorified church above with dear, precious saints who have gone on before us 
and those great heroes of the faith detailed in Hebrews 11 and throughout the annals of church history. We sit around that table with them. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who have gone to the Father before us, and we're called to dine with them as they dine with Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that wondrous? The Roman Catholics twist this and pervert it by praying to saints. That's nonsense. That's pagan. That's idolatry. No, we have the true mystic sweet communion when we recognize very simply that when we take of the bread and the wine, we are communing with all the saints, all the church, in union and communion with God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, the power of the Christian faith is demonstrated in the meal tonight. It's not in the fellowship of the saints as such, but it's in our common head and king. That is where the power resides, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He exercised his power and authority in instituting the supper along with baptism for our good and God's glory as signs and seals of the covenant of uh, grace. But he today asserts his power and gives us strength as the church through this meal. It nourishes us. We're not just going to go through motions. Something spiritual will take place in our midst. But just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's no less true. In fact, it's tr the truest thing we could do together. And his enemies hate this. The last 18 months should have proved this to us beyond any shadow of a doubt. The world does not want the church to gather together. The world doesn't want the church to take this meal. There are those who will see us passing around a plate, or if they did, they would, they would absolutely lose it. They'd say, you might get sick. Yeah, but if we don't do this, brothers and sisters, we will get sick. We will shrivel up. And if you're here tonight, and you are a member in good standing of Christ's church, you must take this. Now, unless you have some kind of blatantly scandalous sin riding on your conscience, do not withhold yourself from this. Rather, heed the command of Christ to come and be nourished. Confess your sins. Leave it at the cross and then come to the table. His royal advances are such that if you neglect them, if you spurn them, you will starve yourself. Finally, we see the fruit of Christian faith at the table. I hazard to say that there's no more appropriate picture this side of glory of the fruit of Christian faith in Jesus Christ than this table. There is no more appropriate picture of communion with Jesus than what we see laid before us in the bread and the wine, in the loaf and in the cup. Through our God-given faith, the Holy Spirit of Christ draws us to this table to feast, but to feast in communion with the Father through the Son, by that Spirit. What could be more grand? What could be more marvelous? And you boys and girls who are here tonight and yet are not, are not yet welcome to the table because you're not of age, I hope that tonight you begin, if you haven't already, to desire to partake of this. I don't want to make too much of it. It's not magic. It's not hocus-pocus or something. But it really is truly for the church for all those who call on the name of Jesus Christ in faith. And in this, you come into contact with, spiritually, the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And this is the great fruit of faith in Christ, is that you are drawn into communion and union with God through Him. 
In this meal we are nourished not by a small morsel of bread or a gulp of wine, but by the spiritual substance of Christ himself. God, who has planted faith in us, brings forth the fruit. He sets the table. He fills our plates that we may eat and endure in strength in this life. And so, brothers and sisters, let us live in Him, reveling in the goodness of His grace found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.